Amen. I can remember from an early age hearing the good wisdom that it's not always what you say that's important, but how you say it. Uh, how many times have I needed to go back and say, no, 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 I didn't mean it that way, right? Which is also what makes things like email and text messaging uh, the, the, the hardest way to communicate. Uh, let's, let's play a little game. Uh, we're going to take the same exact characters, the same exact words. I'm going to say them in two different ways, and let's see if we can figure out how it sounds different. If I were to say, you are so smart, or if I were to say, you are so smart, right? One communicates, I really respect you. I, I think that you have knowledge. Uh, the other communicates, okay, so you think you know everything, huh? Right? The same exact words, the same exact characters, but said in two different ways actually mean two different things. I think some people say that you know, it's what you do that matters, but I think we know in real life that why and how we do what we do is, is just as important. And I think that sometimes Christians are the worst about forgetting how important that is. Right? When we say and do right things in ugly ways, we actually put up barriers to the people that actually need to hear about Jesus. When we say and do right things in ugly ways, we actually end up biting and devouring one another rather than building one another up. When we do right things and say right things in ugly ways, we actually, I think worst of all, sap the very worship out of the truth of God that we are trying to pro profess. And I think we know this, that truth without love is actually just one more distortion of the truth. Over the last few weeks, we've been learning what it means to follow Jesus. And mainly, this is what we've been learning, that what it means to follow Jesus is what he told us uh, back in chapter 8, that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But this morning, what we're going to see is that you can actually offer yourself up as a martyr in ways that don't love God or love your neighbor. We can actually kill ourselves, but do it in ways that aren't actually worshiping God. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, Paul writes it this way. This is a familiar passage that we typically hear read at weddings, but it's actually about the church. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a pro prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, we might know all the right answers. We might possess all the right gifts. We might have all the right insider information. We may even make all what we feel like are the appropriate sacrifices. But if we don't pay attention to what our motivations are, if we don't pay attention to what our values are, if we don't pay attention to why and how we are doing what we are doing, then all of those good and precious gifts from God actually become worthless. This section that we're going to look at today in Mark, we've been working through the, the gospel of Mark, this section that we're going to look at today is, has been named the triumphal entry. And I think that's helpful for us 
Because we're going to get to see Jesus make a victory march. But the values, the way in which Jesus goes on this victory march is much different than we might expect. Jesus carries in himself the values of heaven, the values of God. And it is those values that we need to come to mark our lives as well. This is Jesus. He is marching forward in triumph, but he is going to be teaching us that his kingdom is not of this world. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 10, read the last few verses there of Mark chapter 10, and then we're going to move into Mark chapter 11 and look at the first 11 verses of chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open there. Mark 10, we're going to start in verse 46, and then we're going to read through chapter 11, verse 11. This is God's word. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately, He recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut, cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. God, I pray this morning that you would bless your word to our hearts, Lord, that that you would teach us what it means to carry about in us the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Lord, we want to know what it means to follow Jesus. We want to know what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him, and how we can do that in ways that actually honor you. How we can do that in ways that actually bring glory to your name. Lord, we need your help this morning. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to look at three particular values Three particular ways, these values that shape how we do what we do that come from Jesus. And the first is this, Christ's victory breaks into the world through mercy. 
Christ's victory breaks into the world through mercy. Today we're finally going to arrive with Jesus in Jerusalem, but first we have to make a pit stop in Jericho. It says in verse 46, we'll read it again. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So imagine, let's get inside the story. We're with Jesus, and he's got his disciples, and there's a great crowd following him, and they're going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then we're introduced to this man named Bartimaeus, and we don't know much about Bartimaeus. All we know is that he was a blind man, and because of his disability, uh, his lot in life was to be a beggar. And then it says in verse 47, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so there's two very important things that we see from what Bartimaeus says here. First, in him crying out for mercy, we see that Bartimaeus' appeal to Jesus was not on the basis of his merit. Bartimaeus did not feel like Jesus owed him something. Bartimaeus did not feel entitled to Jesus. But the second important thing is that Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David. And basically what that means is that uh, the, the title son of David is the title for the Messiah. It's like Bartimaeus is saying, Jesus, I believe that you are the promised Messiah. I believe that you are the deliverer that God is going to send into the world. Now, we would think that the crowd and the disciples would be excited about this. right? Here's a guy who gets it. Here's a guy who's crying out to the Messiah, saying, hey, you're the son of David, and I want mercy from you. But that's not what happens. In verse 49, excuse me, verse 48 says, And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. You know, Jesus doesn't have time to stop. They must, they must have thought. Jesus is too important for you, they must have thought. We have, we have much more important things waiting for us in Jerusalem, they must have thought. But the fact that the people in this crowd didn't show Bartimaeus mercy showed them that while they may have been following Jesus where they're, with their feet, they were not yet following Jesus with their heart. They may have been traveling on this road with Jesus, but they had not embraced the values of Jesus. That's why in the next three words, with what happens next, I think we should also, at the same time, feel a little bit awestruck, but at the same time, a little bit convicted. Verse 49, the first three words, and Jesus stopped. The eternally important Jesus, who, by the way, we learned last week was jogging with urgency out ahead of the crowd to get to Jerusalem, who was headed to do the most important work that the world had ever known. When this Jesus, who is going about the Father's business, hears this blind beggar cry out, Have mercy on me. Jesus stops. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus told a story that we typically know as the Good Samaritan. And when I went back and looked at that story this week, I was so, so shocked to find that when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, that the place that the Good Samaritan parable takes place is on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. It's in the same exact place 
that we see Jesus and this crowd traveling in, in this very uh, story for, for today. Uh, Jesus told this parable about the Good Samaritan, and he told, told a story about this man who was on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, and he got attacked by robbers. And then two religious people come by. First, the Levite comes by, and then the, the priest comes by, but they've got important things to do. They have, they have important business to, to take care of, and so they conveniently keep their distance and keep themselves on the other side of the, of the road from the man and don't get involved with this messy, broken man. But here in Mark chapter 10, we actually get to see Jesus himself live out the Good Samaritan parable. Jesus is busy. Jesus has somewhere to be. Jesus has nothing less than cosmic redemption waiting on him in Jerusalem. But when a man who's helpless, needy, cries out for mercy, what does Jesus do? Jesus stops. Jesus gets involved. And Jesus heals the man. I heard recently about a woman in our church uh, who I know also to be a very busy person who uh, had been going to the same grocery store for a while and had been getting to know one of the workers there at the grocery store. And one evening in the midst of a conversation found out that this woman was getting the chance to see her grandkids for the first time in a long time. But overhearing in the conversation that the woman was kind of sad in her heart that, that she didn't have time to go and pick up some gifts to take to her grandkids uh, for Easter... Uh, this woman in our church, without saying anything to the woman, went straight out of the store, went and put together some Easter baskets and brought them back to that woman while she was still on her shift so that when she got done, she could go and take those Easter baskets to her kids. And right there in the store, they're, they're crying together and giving each other hugs. And guys, that's the kind of tenderness of heart that you and I have the opportunity to show every day. I don't know your life. I don't know who you spend your time around, but this is what I know. All day long, you meet broken sinners, and all day long, you encounter broken sufferers. This is, the, this is what I'm convicted about. I'm convicted because I am really quick to blame my busyness on the reason that I don't stop more for people. I'm really quick to think that I have such important things to do that it keeps me from in engaging and loving, messy, and hurting people. But here we see Jesus. He's headed to do the most important thing in the universe. And he stops. And he engages this man. Now, we could obviously uh, talk this morning about uh, you know, how we need to get involved more and what we need to do more, and uh, we could make each other, you know, pump each other up about going out and showing mercy, and that might last for a few weeks. But what we really need, what we really need if we're going to be merciful people is we need a fresh encounter with the gospel. We need to be reminded that while you and I were helpless, while you and I had absolutely no hope in this world, while we were separated from God with absolutely nothing that would cause Him to love us, He sent His Son into the world to live and to die and to rise for sinners like us, and He did it for us not because we deserved it. If Jesus had only come for people who deserved it, He would not have come for anyone. And so if you and I only get involved in people's lives because they deserve it, then that is actually not a reflection of 
gospel mercy. Jesus, when he was talking about love, he talked about loving our enemies. You know what he said? He said, hey, even the Gentiles, which is code word for non-believers, even the Gentiles love people who love them back. <laughs> even non-Christians love people who love them back. That's easy. He said, but when the penny drops of what God has done for us in Christ, when the penny drops that God has loved us when we were running the other way from him, then we can begin to love people who won't love us back. We can begin to get involved in people's lives even when it's messy and inconvenient. We can learn like Jesus that there's really nothing else that, that, that's actually that important that should keep us from engaging and loving and caring about, about people. The gospel trains us. The good news of Jesus Christ trains us to show mercy. So mercy is a controlling value in the way in which the victory of Jesus breaks into the world. But now we need to make our second stop. We first stop in Jericho, but then we're going to stop, quote, near Jerusalem. And we're going to see our second controlling value, that Christ's victory breaks into the world in humility. Christ's victory breaks into the world in humility. Um, every wedding is unique. Uh, there's a lot of different things about, about different weddings. But one thing that's pretty much standard at every wedding is that there is a bride who walks down an aisle towards the groom and towards the person who's officiating the wedding. I've never been to a wedding where the bride didn't walk down the aisle. But even at a wedding, when that bride walks down to the aisle, you're still learning some things about the bride, right? How she chooses to, to engage that moment actually teaches us something about her. What kind of dress is she wearing? You know, is she crying? Uh, uh, what, what song did she pick to be played while she was walking down the aisle? Right? Every bride chooses to walk, but the way in which they choose to walk actually teaches us something about them. And the same thing is true of Jesus. When Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, he was very strategic about how he went about his victory march. Let's look at, at chapter 11 as it opens up in verse 1, how Jesus is being very particular, very precise about how he carries himself about. It says in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Is Jesus afraid of power? No. Is Jesus afraid to command his disciples? No. Is Jesus afraid to exercise authority? No. Uh, is Jesus afraid to be at the center of attention? Not at all. But even in recognition, even in authority, Jesus exudes humility. Maybe we're thinking, why does Jesus go to the trouble to, to figure out all these details? Why does he tell his disciples to go and do the exact thing that, that they're doing here? 
But what we see is that Jesus is actually tapping into an Old Testament prophecy about what it would be like when God's king arrived in Jerusalem. In Zechariah 9.9, this is what we see written about the Messiah hundreds of years before Jesus arrived. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is God's king. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one with authority. And yet, when the king makes his victory march into Jerusalem, he does so humbly, riding on a colt. Jesus teaches us that you can, at the same time, have all authority and be a slave of all. You can, at the same time, be absolutely right and yet carry yourself in a way that is totally and completely humble. One of my favorite scenes uh, from the new Aladdin movie that, that came out, I don't know, a year or two ago, as uh, after Genie has turned Aladdin into a prince, he makes a triumphal entry. He makes an entry into the city where Princess Jasmine is there awaiting him. And first, you've got these drummers who come in with these big, bright colored clothes on, and they're, they're beating their drums. And then the trumpeters come, on, come in, clear the way, clear the way. And as Jeannie starts to sing a song, there's you know, confetti blasts going off. And then my favorite part is all of a sudden, you hear this, the noise of an elephant. And Aladdin is you know, 40 feet up in the air on this big, big elephant. And he's got a, a, a bowl of money, of gold coins. And he just starts throwing out gold coins to the crowd like it's candy. And then there's the, the singer starts singing about how he's got golden camels and he's got exotic animals and peacocks and all this stuff. And at the very end, after the, the, the music elevates and there's a crescendo, uh, the, the confetti blasts and Aladdin standing there like this, you know, at the very end of the scene, like showing off like, oh, look how great I am. Look how awesome I am. Right. That is what we expect from a triumphal entry. That is what we expect when the king arrives into, into the city. But when Jesus, King Jesus the Lord of history, the one in whom is all authority. We've watched him. We've watched him raise people from the dead. We've watched him calm the seas. We've watched him heal the lepers. We've watched him heal blind people. We've watched Jesus have authority over demons. And when he makes his triumphal entry, he comes in gentle, lowly, humble, riding on the colt. Authority and servanthood are compatible Glory and humility are possible. In the same person, it can be that there is truth and that there is love. So let's, let's make a connection to our everyday lives. I think this is, a, uh, I think this is something that at this cultural moment, in the history of especially the American church, this is something that we need to grow in. This is something that we need to mature in. Uh, there are two major mistakes that sometimes I see in myself and that I definitely see in the world around me when it comes to, to our Christian faith. And I'll label them like this. The, the one mistake I would call the, the crusade approach. And then the other mistake I would label the Eeyore approach. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with the Crusades. The Crusades are a dark time in the history of the church 
where uh, people thought that the way to advance the kingdom of Christ was through force. It was through uh, battles. It was through pillaging and taking over lands. Now, I don't personally know any Christians who are going out and wielding the sword in the name of Jesus, but I know many people, and I have seen it in myself, where our approach to the lost world, our approach to engaging other people is very similar to the Crusades. We go out with pressure. We go out with guilt. We go out uh, with harsh words. We go out to tell everybody else in the world why they're wrong and we're right. And that crusade approach is not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ because fundamentally the gospel is a message of grace. We can hold the law in front of people's faces all day long and it will never save them. But then there's another approach. Maybe that's, maybe that's not your style. There's the Eeyore approach. Or maybe, maybe we think for some reason it, it gives us credibility with the world to mope and complain and groan and to act like the world is falling apart and to act like things are coming to an end and like nothing can ever go right. Somehow we think that that is going to help us connect with people. But just like the crusade approach, that approach is not connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ because fundamentally the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of hope. We can be honest about this world in which we live. We can be honest about the mess in our own lives and the mess in our own hearts, but we also know that we worship a resurrected Savior who has promised to come back and make all things right. That is where our hope is. And so to mope around and complain and grope, that is not, that is not the way forward for us. Neither the crusade approach nor the Eeyore approach. If we can learn, if we can learn for the gospel of grace and the gospel of hope to come into our hearts, we might actually be able to engage the world in ways that, that make the gospel realistic. Let me put it this way. We've talked about weddings. We've talked about Aladdin. Spare me a football analogy, okay? In football, there is such thing as a lead blocker, right? The lead blocker is the unsung hero. He doesn't actually get the ball. Uh, He's the guy who goes out in front of the guy with the ball. And his job is to go out and to make a lane. His job is to make a hole so that the guy with the ball can run through the lane. But here's the problem. If the lead blocker doesn't do his job, then he actually gets in the way of the guy with the ball. When it comes to Christians sharing our faith, sharing the truth with others, if we lead with pride, then we will actually be getting in the way of the truth. But if we lead with humility, then we might just be able to make a lane for the truth. See, it's not the way you and I act that can save anybody. There is, there is, it is not possible for anyone to be saved by how you act. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can save. But how we act will either make a lane for the gospel or it will become a barrier to the gospel. The way we act either opens up a lane for our message or it closes the lane for our message. 
And uh, like I said earlier, this is just one opinion. This is why I believe that trying to press truth through the medium of Facebook is never going to be helpful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because it doesn't allow Jesus to use the beauty of your life, the beauty of what he's done to you and in you and through you, to make a lane for the truth that you're trying to press. I think, man, we need this, guys. We need this. It's not just what we say, but it's how we say it. It's how we carry ourselves. And here's Jesus. He is king. He is Lord. He is commanding his disciples. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. And yet, when he comes in, he comes in gentle, humble, lowly, riding on a colt. All right. Finally this morning, we are going to arrive in Jerusalem. And we're going to see our last controlling value. We are going to arrive in Jerusalem and see that Christ's victory breaks into the world with patience. Christ's victory breaks into the world with patience. Pick up in verse 8. Verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a colt, the people began to praise him. And as they chant their praises, they begin to chant Psalm 118. Seems like they might be chanting it as if he's the fulfillment of it. Uh, I'm going to read Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 to you. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Our Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is what they were yelling in joyous excitement as Jesus came into the city. As if they're saying, Yes, finally, our Messiah is here. Yes, finally, the King has come. And yet there's something ironic about this, that if you actually go and read Psalm 118, just a few verses before what they're chanting is another verse that Jesus will actually quote in just a few days. In Mark chapter 12, we're going to see that Jesus quotes Psalm 118 verse 22, and here's the ironic twist. Psalm 118 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It is true that Jesus is the king. It is true that Jesus is the deliverer. He, he is the Messiah. And yet the way in which he is going to deliver his people is by being rejected. These same people who on this day are crying out, blessed is he, in just a few days will be gathered together crying out, crucify him. Mm. The crowd was praising Jesus, but in a very real sense, they were praising the wrong Jesus. It's kind of like this. If someone came up to me and said, I love your wife so much, 
in that moment, I would be thrilled. I would be very excited. And then if they were to say, you know, I just love how tall Allie is. And I just love how blonde Allie's hair is. And I just love Allie's red car that she drives. I would have to say, listen, you might know the name of my wife, but you clearly do not know my wife. You may know her name, but all the details you just described are not actually the details that are true about who she is. This crowd was chanting, Jesus, Messiah, he's the the coming king, he's bringing in the, the kingdom of David, and yet everything they expected about him was actually something different than what God was giving. Everything that their hearts were set on was actually something different than who Jesus really was. If we go back and look at the history of the kings of Israel, we find that when Israel first desperately wanted a king, they were actually wanting a king because they didn't want God as their king. Consistently throughout the history of Israel, Israel constantly wanted something less than what God was offering them. They didn't realize that the only reason that God had come and chosen them and made a covenant with them in the first place was so that this Messiah would be able to come through their line to bless the whole world. And so when this Messiah actually came, they were so in love with the shadow that they missed the substance. They were so in love with the they were so in love with the outer shell that when the real thing showed up, they missed it. Samuel Renahan in his book The Mystery of Christ, he gives us this helpful illustration. He talks about going to a restaurant and ordering off the menu, and it's one of those menus that has pictures on it. And you're so excited maybe to get your, you know, your tacos or your burger or whatever it is, and you're so thrilled that you can, you can see that food. It's right there in front of you. And then the waiter actually brings the food out, and instead of eating the entree, you eat the menu. You fall in so in love with the shadow that when the real thing shows up, you choose the shadow over the substance. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. And guys, guess what? It's not that far off from what happens to us a lot of the times. Our longings for an earthly kingdom, our longings for national dominance, our longings to have our worldly comforts met, this idea that God will somehow bless us for our vague morality, we might be just like them, chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet the Lord is not the real Lord. The Jesus that we say we believe in might not be the real Jesus. We need someone to save us from our sins. We need someone to reconcile us back to God. We need someone who will defeat Satan. We need someone who can conquer death for us. And we're still stuck on him ushering in our earthly dreams? We're still stuck on the shadow. And Jesus, the real risen Jesus, is offering us something so much better He's saying, don't settle for the menu. Eat the entree. Eat the real thing. 
when Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem, it's, there's this interesting detail that Mark gives us in verse 11. It's the only gospel that records this detail for us. And I think it shows us almost, almost a, 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 a contra, a, a identical contrast to what's happening with Israel. They want instant gratification. They want an earthly king. They want what they want, and they want it now. And yet here's Jesus in verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. After a long day's journey, Jesus enters into the very heart of the city, into the temple. And what we're going to find out next week is that what Jesus finds there is an atrocity. What Jesus sees, when Mark tells us here that Jesus went in the temple and he looked around, what he saw was grotesque. And yet, we see the self-control of Jesus. We see the patience of Jesus. Rather than going in, a, in an immediate rash rage and just flipping into... Now, tomorrow, that's exactly what's going to happen. Tomorrow in the life of Jesus... He is going to bring down a purifying fire upon Israel and its temple and his worship. Tomorrow in the life of Jesus, we are going to see a rare moment of rage. But in this moment, he walks in, he looks around, and he walks away. Hmm. Is that something that we are able to do? When we feel like proving our point, when we feel like creating our little heaven on earth is just one grab away, when showing people that, that we're right and they're wrong, can we learn from Jesus when is the right time to engage and when is the right time to walk away? All right, let me try to sum it up this way. This is the question, this is kind of the big question I'm asking myself. What if our big problem is not what we're doing, but it's how we're doing it? What if maybe our strategy is not the issue? in the church, in the American South. Maybe it's that we haven't yet embraced the values of Jesus. That how we go about engaging people is so far removed from who the real Jesus is that it's like that lead blocker who's just getting in the way. That we're just getting in the way of the gospel. And so I want to ask you a few questions this morning as give you, give you a chance to reflect a little bit. And then we're going to give God's word the last word today. A few questions. Try to, I'll try to go through this slow so you can think. First is this. Is 
my heart tender towards others just as God's heart is tender towards me in Christ? Is my heart tender towards others, especially hurting, broken, sinners, sufferers, undeserving, like God's heart is tender towards me, a broken, sinner, sufferer, undeserving person. When I share truth, here's the second question. When I share truth, does humility in me make a lane for the gospel? Or is pride in me getting in the way of the gospel? When I go out and I try to share, share the truth, when I try to stick up for, for Christianity, when I try to put, put what I know to be true out there, does humility create a lane or does pride get in the way? And then a final question for reflection. Is my hope actually set on the future coming kingdom? Or is my hope still stuck on the things of this earth? Is the deep longing of my heart for what God has promised? Or is the deep longing of my heart still stuck in the shadow, in the menu? All right. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Titus chapter 2, and we're going to let God's Word have the last word today. And in particular, what I love about this passage is it shows us that the way we grow in reflecting Jesus is by receiving Jesus. The way we become more merciful is by receiving mercy. The way we become more humble is by beholding His humility. The way we become more patient is by seeing the penny drop in our hearts of how patient and gentle and lowly Jesus is towards us. The word in Titus 2 that I want you, when we read it, I want you to hear is the word trained. We're going to see that word trained. That the gospel doesn't just save sinners. The gospel trains believers. It trains Christians. It molds us into being more like Jesus. So let's read this and we'll let God's word be the last word. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
God, this morning, as we think about what it takes to become more like Jesus, we know that what it takes is your very power in us. Lord, we can sit here and we can try to force ourselves into becoming more merciful. We can try to force ourselves into becoming more humble and more patient. But what we really know is that we need the penny of the gospel to drop. So God, I pray that you would press the gospel deep into our hearts, that when we see what you've done for us, that it would mark how we treat others. Lord, that the reality of what Jesus has done on our behalf would come to be the mold that would shape our church and shape our life. Lord, we want to be a good witness to you. We want our sacrifices to actually be worshiped to you. And so, Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Please, Lord, help us to learn what it means to carry about in our bodies the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal bodies. We praise you, God, and commit ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.